0: so happy to reconnect with a guy just fresh off uh, the beaches of Cancun. George Garzon, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show.
1: Thanks, my man.
0: George, you know, there's something that I wanted to ask you about in the first um, interview. Uh, I was hired by an independent doc maker uh, probably about five years ago to, um, to conduct a, a bevy of audio interviews with um, anyone affiliated with Stan Getz for a documentary, and I wound up like, uh, I mean, I talked from ev- with everybody from David Amram to Helen Merrill to <clears throat> to Huey Lewis. Uh, you know, I mean, the the guy just you know was an avatar. But I so I did hundred, dozens of interviews, um, and the long and the short of it is that he really was actually a complete, uh, I don't know what the right word is, sociopath. He, he he didn't, He some of the stories that came out of his life were insane. Family stories, uh, his relationship with Monica. I spent about four days at um, his mansion in um, upstate New York documenting stuff. Suffice it to say, the documentary, uh, Shadowbrook it was called, the documentary never got off the ground because his fa- he has two different families and they're highly dysfunctional and can't agree on anything, even though it would be a compelling documentary. And I noticed that you did a tribute album with Eddie and Lenny White and a few other cats to Stan. And I just wanted you to talk from your point of view about did you know him personally? And... Uh, what was the reason for the tribute?
1: Well, um, I didn't. I didn't know him personally, but he was really good friends with Emilio Lyons, who was my um, saxophone repair guy.
0: Absolutely, in I interviewed. I interviewed Emilio. I know who that cat is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, he had a really great relationship with uh, <clears throat> Stan because I, I don't know exactly how it started, but. You know, um, I guess he came to Boston and repairing his horn and stuff like that. And so I, I didn't really know him, but I I knew of him to Amelia. In fact, Amelia worked at this place called Rayburn's Music Store in Boston. <clears throat> and we all bought our horns from him. And one day I walked in, and he was there. Uh, um, Stan was, and as I was getting closer, Amelia looked at me. I knew exactly what he was going to say.
0: <laughs> but he
1: said, like, "Georgie, Georgie, come over here. <laughs> take out your arm. Play for Stan." And, and, and I was only about seventeen. Oh my God! And <clears throat> so I was like, "No, I'm not taking. I'm not playing. Take my arm. Come on, take out your arm. No, I'm not doing it right now." And I was just, and I was like, come on, kid, take out that autoplay. All right. So I pull out the horn and I start playing a couple of things, you know, a little bit. All of a sudden, he stops and he goes, man, can I try your horn? <laughs> <I> go, yeah. <laughs> so he tries my horn. He plays my horn and my mouthpiece, you know, the whole thing. And he says, man, I'll tell you what, I'll swap you my gold plated horn for your horn. That's how much you like my horn. Whoa. <clears throat> and... Everybody in the school was looking at me to wait to hear what I was going to say. And I looked, and I said, man, I can't do it. And he said, why? I said, because my mother brought me this horn, and she'll kill me if I do this. And he got pissed, and he his he, he all here, and he threw the horn back at me and uh, took his horn. And then, years later, after he passed they donated his saxophone to Berkeley, and it was in the... They put it in the library and before they did, Emilio had me play it with Gary Burton. Wow. You know, the old... Because Gary was in Stan's band at 1.2, I think.
0: With with, and, uh, with with Joe, with Joe Hunt.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And this is... So... I think they, they did like a dedication and a hosting. guest Family came and... I played the horn,
0: and then when I played it, I realized why he wanted to swap my horn, because I don't think this horn was as good as his as mine. So. Of course. I mean, the guy was such a schemer. I mean, I'm talking like <clears throat> this guy. I don't even want to get into the darkness of it, but, I mean, he tried to kill Monica multiple times. He would um, <clears throat> he, he put his foot through... Uh, a glass door when the cops showed up at his Irvington estate it was in a walking boot the next day playing with a Dion Warwick um, really um you know a, a fascinating so I mean in, in terms of the tribute album was that something that someone came to you and was, or was that were I mean because I mean the guy truthfully I mean you listen to and this is a good follow-up question as well uh brother garzone I mean it, the The seminal album, and when I interviewed Steve Gadd at the time, he couldn't stop listening to this album. It was a drummerless album. Uh, it was uh, Herb Ellis, Ray Brown, Oscar Peterson, and Stan Getz. And the rhythm on that on that album is ridiculous because there's no trap drummer, and uh, it just swings so hard. And Stan could just play melodically, he would never repeat ideas, just an incredible improviser, Um, but very straight. I mean, he was a straight ahead guy. And, uh, and I wonder, um, uh, you know, was that album something that you really felt like you, you wanted to pay homage to him or did someone say, Hey man, he's got a great bag of tunes and let's put Eddie and, and Lenny together and let's do this.
1: Well, again, growing up with Uncle Rocco, uh, well, my Uncle Frank, when I started playing, he gave me three albums. One was Swing Into Spring with Penny Goodman. <sighs> the other one was Sonny Meets Hawk with Coleman Hawkins and Sonny Rollins. Wow. And then the third one was uh, Reflections by Stan, with Stan Getz.
0: Wow, 67. So, I know that
1: one. Yeah, so this, I, I was nine years old, and my uncle Frank was like, "All hey, right, George, you do listen to this, and you play along, and you know. <laughs> so while I was 10 years old playing saxophone, playing along with, you know, these tunes on that record, you know, Reflection, Moonlight in Vermont, If Ever I Would Leave You. So growing up as a young um, person, I had that, um, sound in my ear plus the saxophone family so then when I met uh, I was playing Rachel Z's record release party at the Blue Note and and um, uh, Um, and Mike Minieri was there and I didn't even know him she said oh will you come down and play on a couple of so he so I said yeah so I went down and I didn't even know Mike and when I met him so I played a few tunes, and as soon as the set was over, he, he jumped out of the audience and said to me, man, I love your sound. Will you, will you want to do a couple of records with me? I said, like, absolutely. And then I, and I said, but what, what, what would you do for a tribute record? I said, oh, and, you know, I grew up listening to Stan and What do you think about that? And he was all over that.
0: That is, Mike is a, is a good friend. I've got a, I that That is awesome. That you didn't know him before that, and he came up and approached you like that.
1: Um, well, I mean, I, I knew of him from steps and stuff like that, but <clears throat> excuse me, as far as um, you know, meeting him, this was the first time. You know, because you know he liked my sound, he, it attracted him. Then I ended up playing in his group with American Diary with Erskine. And we did four records together. Oh my God, I
0: don't think I was even aware
1: of that. Um, Fours and twos, with Lovano. That was, and then I did the tribute to Stand and Fours and Twos, and then the Fringe in New York, and Moodyology with Kenny Warner and the Fringe.
0: What about what about Demetrio's Dream?
1: Uh, that's a whole other thing.
0: What's that about? Uh,
1: that was, um, it's just weird. I was just talking about that, man. <laughs> so
0: I don't know if you want to. No, yeah, no. Let's. I want to stay with this track for a minute. Um. So, but a bit being Mike, Mike, I'll um, I'll send you a couple of interviews that I did with him because I mean, that guy was literally doing jingles and commercials in the New York studio scene in the early to mid 1950s. I mean, this is way before Chuck Rainey and Steve Gadd and. Richard you talking T- about Manieri? Manieri, Manieri? yeah, dude, and he grew up in poverty stricken part of uh, Brooklyn, I think, or New York. Yeah. It was the man is just, just. Did he give you? I mean, I just would. Did he give you a, all creative control on the session, or what was his input in terms of being a producer? Yeah,
1: yeah, he he was. I mean, I think he believed enough. I mean, me and I, I mean, I worship this guy still. So. Anything, you know, he was very business savvy. We toured, he had a shit together. He, his father was in Vaudeville, so that's how they started. And then Mike Mieri played with Buddy Rich when they used to do the tours in Vietnam. And he tells me the story about, yeah, we were in the plane flying in Vietnam, going to the gig, and all of a sudden... A buddy, I don't know how Buddy got there, but there was the fuel of the band and they take, they have, they have, um, you know, ground fire from, from the Vietnamese and they get hit. And, and yeah, he's telling me, this, next thing the pilot says, okay, strap yourself, brace yourself, we're going down. He's telling me this shit. I'm like, wow. You know, so deep. What this guy has been through. Well, right no, now. it's
0: insane. I'm looking for it because he told me the most insane, exactly the same. I'm gonna have the hard time figuring this. He, they went all over the world, and 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 I didn't hear about the Vietnam thing, but he would talk about being in Afghanistan. This is in the six fifties, in the sixties, and yeah. like they'd have like some woman who would pull birds out of her, her brazier. And they'd have like, it was a total, there were all these acts and then Buddy Rich's band would come on and they'd play. And it was like, you know, to these people who were, I mean, it was, it was silent it was, it was, it was eerie. It was quite remarkable stuff. And they were flying on those, on those classic army planes, which was just the guy I'll have to find that. Um, that clip, but th- you know, I wanted. To, this is what I wanted to read to you. This is from Brother Lovano. <clears throat> you can riff on this any way you want. That's what he told me in um in our interview. He said uh, Paul Motion came up in that very spiritual crowd of players with Charlie Hayden, Keith Jarrett, Dewey Redman, Bill Evans, Gary Peacock, and Paul Blay. They were creating music within the music. You have structures, you have little sequences of changes and harmonies, and there might be a certain tempo that something somebody plays might suggest. To listen to records is one thing, but when you're in a room with that music, it affects you in another kind of way. He was, uh, motion was part of the musical continuum of John Coltrane and Albert Ayler, who he played with. When I first started hearing Paul on records, before I ever met him, I was drawn into that whole idea of creating music within the music from his earliest stuff with Bill Evans. Then I heard the Keith Jarrett Quartet in 71, and I was going to Berklee College of Music at the time. That was the music and direction that totally captured me. It was a real development to try and improvise in a manner that was vibrating on tonalities, and not just playing as a technique, as an exercise to play. All those players played with beautiful technique, but it wasn't an exercise to play. It was an idea about creating ideas together in a unit. And that, to me, encompasses so much of your work with the Fringe. I just wonder, you know, Uncle Rocco and those guys. I mean, you know, the Benny Goodman record. I mean, that stuff is, is, is great. I mean, it, it, it has its place. But the, the stuff that I guess it would be, I mean, I don't want to say playing in the crack, so to speak. But it's that idea of playing music within the music it's this full conversation turns into just a sheet of sound and i just do you remember where did that come from you know just being around your peers playing hours in the combat zone do, you, do can you just talk about your concept of creating music within the music you know well
1: i mean Growing up in a musical family, these people were so into it. Um, They just just had a pure light about what it was. And it was so crystal clear about if you did this or you're going to do this, that, you know, this is what you're going to do. So I just grew up, you know, Playing, then I went to Berkeley and then I met Lovano and I met all these cats that were really into playing, and it was it was just something that we did. There wasn't any doubt in our mind if we were going to do it or not. A and then B, you know, meeting the right people like Lovano, then <clears throat> meeting the Fringe and Galati and Appleman, all these things that happened were almost. Meant to be because we were so positive about playing. You know, that, am, am
0: I on the right track, or? dude? I'm. Lo- I'm. No, it's perfect. I just, you know, to me, like at that time, I mean, you go back and listen to an album like Morning Star, Keith Jarrett, '71. I mean, at that time, that was incredibly progressive uh, music, and and yet those cats were making a living, touring domestically, being able to sing for their supper, and you guys were like. I just the mindset to me is so fascinating to say I'm, I'm around all these players, and we want to invent new form or new structures or just new musical vocabulary. And I don't know. I mean, it's just the idea of, of being able to say, "Hey, you know, we're going to be able to make a living doing it. I think that that's the most important thing. Um, did you, at that time, even in those early years, um, after Berkeley, were you taking, um, uh, gigs? Was there a point in your career, early career where you were having to take, you know, bar mitzvah gigs, funk gigs, just cause they paid well, or do you feel like for the most part, you've always been able to play the music you've wanted to play and, and get paid to, to do it?
1: Oh. I grew up um I grew up playing weddings, you know, so that it was ongoing. <clears throat> and then um I went on the road with Tom Jones and I came back and it was you know, Boston was, it's not like New York, there's really nothing happening except, you know, playing these weddings and I got the gig at Berkeley and, and I always felt protected by Berkeley because it was such a good job, you know. So uh, Teaching at Berkeley and playing the weddings allowed us to play the fringe and go ape shit and not have to worry about, <laughs> you know, this is this kid going to, you know, be right. a week's pay? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, just, you know, doing what we did, those two things allowed me to do this other thing. And we were just, I mean, really, we were just following the music. It wasn't like, oh, let's do this and we're going to you know, to make this happen. And we just kind of went for it. I was always around cats that were, you know, knew what was going to happen
0: because they were just doing it, you know, like following the music. <clears throat> I'm glad that you brought that up because fo- you followed the music and wound up connecting with a guy who I interviewed a few years ago. But I was just delighted, and I think I might have even seen you with him. How- please tell me how you connected with Bob Weir?
1: Um, <clears throat> one of my students, Kenny Brooks, a great tenor player who studied with me at NEC. Uh, years later, you know, in New York, blah, 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 he's out playing. He's coming to Boston. And he, I say, he's, I say hey, Ken, hey, no, I'm going to be in Boston. You want to come to the gig? I said, yeah. He said, bring your horn. Dave um Bob wants you to sit. I'm like, What? <laughs> yeah, bring your horn. It's a jam band. I didn't even know what the fuck that meant, you know? Yeah, no, and a- <laughs> so I get to the front door at the at the audit I, I forget where it was. Really big place downtown Boston. I couldn't even get past the front door because they wouldn't let me in with the saxophone I said, Look, Bob, where has me to sit in? Right, right. Oh, you can't come in with that. And they didn't, hadn't made the connection yet. Then all of a sudden I hear, Garzon, what are you starting to shit? <laughs> and, and it was this one of the top security guards of this, um, uh, geez, I can't remember the name of it, was like downtown. Well, well, no,
0: I think it was at the Orpheum, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah dude, I was, dude it Garzon. Was. Dude, I want to tell you something. Right before you go on, I was at that show. I was at BU time <laughs> and dude, the I, the one thing that I walked out of that show saying was that sax. I mean, I I mean, I, I Rat Dog was cool. I was like, that saxophone player is insane. That's the one thing that I came. At, I cannot believe because it was packed. That show was mobbed. Yeah.
1: Well, what? he was. You know, he came into town, and if it wasn't for the fact that the head of security. Was a friend of mine of the family who lives out here in Bridgewater. I wouldn't have got in. He said, Guys, are you starting to shit at my butt? And I look at him and I said, Yeah, what the hell are you doing? I'm head of security. What are you doing? I said, Oh, they asked me to sit in. I like, get your ass in here.
0: You know? <laughs> Dude, it always so, works out like that, man.
1: <laughs> so then when I, you know, I, I've not had never done anything like that. So Kenny, I see Kenny, hey, how are you doing? So we get ready to go put these inner earbuds in and I start listening to this piano like what the fuck this is <laughs> this is uh, the Grateful Dead right. I walk out on stage and it's all my friends in the audience that I grew up with and everybody was smoking shit and everybody was fucked up and they're screaming at me and I realize oh my god you know, and actually, uh, Ernie Bach. You don't know Ernie Bach. Ernie Bach is the biggest Toyota dealership in New England. He was there. He texts me on the phone while I'm playing. I'm like, what? man, y'all jump in the audience and so start killing someone?" <laughs> but anyway, so that was the beginning. And then later on,
0: I I, I knew Jeff Coffin from Maine. No, sure I do. Nep- yeah, bad at my yeah.
1: nephew knows. You know. Um, Dave Matthews, hey Jeff, can you let us in? Uh, let, me, let me see. He called back. Yeah, yeah, you guys come down. And Dave wants you to sit in. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, come down and sit in. So I brought my horn. And it was another one of those things where, you know, you go and you play in, in, around town and everybody knows you, you know. And after I sat in with those cats, I started working my ass off. That was a great connection, you know. So, uh, was
0: it th- that 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 music of that time, I mean, I'm even talking about Ten Wheel Drive or The Flock or, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I would just say that like that psychedelic, even Jimi Hendrix and that kind of stuff, obviously it was all swirling all around you, but you just weren't, that wasn't something that you were gravitating to at that time when you, I mean, really you got, as far as playing that that kind of
1: music. Dude, I hate to tell you that in Boston, until I went to Berkeley, I grew
0: up with all of that. All of that. Oh, person. yeah, no. Wait, wait, first, first of all, wait, okay, so let's... By the way, I have not transcribed anything else from the first interview. You're going to get emails, <laughs> okay? Because I totally screwed up the Garzon uh, chronology of the James Brown cover band. You're telling me that that the Jefferson Airplane... Sly Stone, all that stuff was you were. That was you before Berkeley. The
1: cream, the cream. Uh, The Grateful Dead, you know, Grateful Dead. I mean, I wasn't. I was just listening to it on AM radio, but and then listening a little bit. But as I got, when I went to Berkeley, that first week, I was introduced to everybody. Uh, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. Sun Ra, um, you know, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, oh, man. just everything at once. And, you know, and everybody. it was 68, so everybody was pie, partying like crazy. And I was like, damn, I'm digging this whole music thing, you know. It was like everything at once, and I just kind of let it happen, you know. Um, but then as you know, as you get into school, it's <clears> better <throat> to learn about what the hardcore
0: stuff was. You know. Well, actually at that time too, uh, I'm wondering about, you know, did you get a chance to see one of the guys who I still feel in my spirit on this journey, even though I never met him, uh, at the time he sort of was the heir apparent. I think it's unfair, but you know, they had passed the torch from Coltrane to this cat, uh, Joe Farrell, playing with uh, Elvin and Jimmy Garrison. That to me is some of the, and that was boom seventy one right there when you got to Berkeley. Yeah, well
1: Chick Korea too. He didn't play with Chick.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, he was originally he was that Spain the original and all that all he was that the original uh, sax player in uh, in Return to Forever with Ayerdo on yeah. drums. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's everything that I was being exposed to. Buddy Rich's, uh, oh my God. Channel One you know all all of that at once. You know, uh, Maida Ferguson, uh, just uh, Don Ellis. You know, all all of all cats. Everything coming at once. You know, it was
0: wild. You uh, did your did your uncle rock? I'm, I'm I did you were you hipped at all to Tommy Lapuma, Nick DeCaro from Cleveland? I know those cats are from Cleveland.
1: Yeah, well I knew of them, and Tommy Lapuma, you know, but I, again, I I was a serious Boston kid and until Berkeley I was just here and and then when 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 I went to Berkeley I started meeting all these cats from all around the country. You know, not to mention the world. And you know just hanging with people from Canada then Levano and Jamie haddad from Cleveland oh yeah. this and that oh yeah you know, it was it was
0: pretty crazy you know who did you who did you meet did you meet uh when did you first meet to because he was up in Canada for a minute
1: yeah, that wasn't until Moses when i was when Moses moved to Boston and then years later um, we were both teaching at NEC... And, um, uh, you know, he, he kind of came on the scene. I, I remember going to see a concert at the um, the Middle East. Uh, jo- uh, no, Jordan Hall. Wow. Yeah, played he played. She played. And uh, uh, Moses played. I think Lockwood played. And I, I wasn't really, I mean, I didn't really know him. I met him. Hey, how you doing? Shit like that. Yeah, but right, right. You know. Um, nothing deep rooted, you know, to the point of, you know, uh, getting to know the guy because I I was just kind of, I don't know what I was doing,
0: but who who were the, who were the, who were the, yeah, no, the Canadian cats were more like Terry Clark and Don Thompson or some of the new, who, who, who in Canada or who are the Canadian cats you met?
1: Well, I was actually on the Buddy Rich band with Pat LaBarbera. Wow. And um, it was me, Pat, Joe Romano, Bob Korea, and John Oslowski. And that was in well, one of the first... After Tom Jones, I went out for a couple of weeks and did that. But then I, I quit because... I didn't quit because I thought we were going back out with Tom. And then we we ended up not going, so...
0: Um, wow, it's crazy because I just picked up that a- an album from that time, uh, Buddy Rich album. Uh, wait, wait, was it? Wait, who would you go? whose Whose tour was it?
1: I come off of Tom, and then there was an opening, so I grabbed uh, two weeks with Buddy. We played up in Maine.
0: Oh, that is so heavy because um, I just they went. You never recorded with them. You left too early, but I just picked up an album. Uh, of theirs uh, that has that exact horn section, except minus you, and it is burning hot. I, I cannot believe that you were in there. Yeah,
1: that. they were, they were killing. I mean, buddy, you know it was a big thing in my era to play with Buddy Rich, and then I actually got the gig on Alto, believe it or not. Uh that's wow. the only sheet they had. Um, <clears throat> but uh, no, I mean, I, I just you know, as far as the music itself, I just kind of. The thing is, my concept is the music finds you. You don't find the music. You know, I, I really believe that all of, you know, it's been decided from a higher force who's going to do what mm-hmm. and how they're going to do it. That's just my concept. And and I just, like, you can trust it. Like, you just let it happen. And and they should find you. I mean, that's my concept. A lot of people like, differently, but and that was my era of musicians, and now it's completely different,
0: you know? I know, no, I mean, was that something that got in, inst- I know your family was, I mean, Brother Garzon was covered in flour, I mean, there was a certain aesthetic to the way your family raised you, but when you met Chong Sik Kim, did he sort of solidify the idea of saying, even if there's a void, even if there's emptiness, the music will, f- or don't search to, don't struggle to search. It will find you. When did that get solidified in your, in your, in your constitution?
1: Uh, I, ju- I think I just knew it all 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 the time. Wow. See, when, when we were in school or when we were coming up, there was no like, oh, I've got to find the music and I have to search. You just did it, you know, and um, right. I, there was no like. What's the way? Because the way is while you're doing it. You know what I mean? And it's, and, and when I met, I mean, I knew in my life going way back to Kung Fu, I knew that somewhere I was going to end up doing this kind of a thing. And then I did when I met him, but he just helped solidify the, like, the strength in myself you know like I didn't need to believe in anything because I was just going for it I mean that's what the 60s was about you know hippies and all that shit just go for it you know and meeting him was I think part of the road trip you know, <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know? I know it's so beautiful I mean so uh, genuinely though I mean obviously you have in, you're entrenched at Berkeley. That concept of what you're talking about, which is an incredibly—I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say Zen, but it is something of don't force it, stop looking for it. It will come to you through pre a predetermined thing. With kids, especially, I mean, my daughter's about to go off to college, and I don't even. I mean, there's just insanity when you get some of these younger cats who, let's face it, probably didn't have the same experience as you did growing up as a kid. You were already a kind of a seasoned bandstand cat, you know, when you got there, even though you still had a lot to learn, how do you try to get that point across uh, to cats that are pushing, that are trying to control and grasp and lunge and seek what they want? They're trying to seek everything out because they... They don't necessarily have a disposition to say, "Well, this is what I'm meant to do, and I'm going to let it come to me."
1: I just tell them to chill out. <laughs>
0: <That> <laughs> let's get like some. some let's get some some whiskey and chis, just have a couple couple stiff. I mean, what does that mean? Chill out, like because I think in some oh, ways. If,
1: Pull the fuck out. <laughs> you know, these young kids, they think there's some kind of Hollywood in this shit, you know? Right. And it, it, it's, you know, like with, like we said before with the internet, Facebook and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. They think if they get on there, then they are famous, you know? And But they're not listening <clears throat> to what they sound like. They're just kind of going in there. And it's, that's how it is now. They feel if you buy a saxophone, and you have a nice case, you have a cool strap, no matter what you sound like, you're
0: a musician. I want to stop you right there, because I I know what you're saying. You're telling me that cats that get into Berkeley College of Music with a, a, a genuine love and drive to... I don't care if they're in a facility or technique. You're telling me that that's true, that that's, that's, that's cats that are going to Berkeley College of Music really feel that way
1: oh you know the, 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 they have 200 singers that came in last last september and everybody's looking for american idol right. and i i i get it i get it but it's just a platform for them to be seen you know what i mean I mean, and plus, you know, I mean, they're into it. The people, you know, come to Berkeley. I mean, you're dropping six, $67,000 a year. You better be into it, you know? Um, so they're, com- they're coming because they want to learn, but they also have this vision of becoming famous, you know, like, what's her name? And I just saw her on TV, and, uh, you know, the famous singer. She's like, a, oh, my God.
0: Who's it, Taylor Swift? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh this god. Kind
1: of yeah, thing, You know? And shit like that and uh, you know, uh what's her name? Um oh my god I'm chicken. Tony Bennett and
0: uh oh, oh Lady Gaga, yeah. Yeah,
1: you yeah. know, it's like and I get it. It's like it's like us wanting to sound like Coltrane but a completely different track, you know? <laughs> and uh, the thing is, Jake, um, uh, you know, like you can't say shit because you know, every, you know, like sometimes if you open your multi-end you people's careers, so they just come in. They're willing to pay that money. I mean, a lot. A lot of these kids come from. They have to come from well-to-do families because not everybody gets a scholarship. Right. You know. Right. So I mean, you know, they give it a shot and see what happens. And you know, they're into it. You know what I'm saying? So you can't knock that. You know, and I'm not knocking. I'm just saying that. You know, what's, what's your vision? The vision is to find yourself. That's what I try to teach these kids. Like, I'm trying to teach the student how to teach himself, you know, and not be so locked on to your teacher because after four years, I kick you out. You're on your own, you know.
0: Do you say that they're more attached to their teacher than anyone that you that you studied under? That they're more, I mean, I, you hear that, so you hear people talking, or you see people come out, and, you know, not not to my ear, because I'm not a musician, but people can tell where they studied, or who their professor was, because they sound just like their professor. And you try to get them to wean off of that, and become more, find their own voice. Yeah, well,
1: I mean, I studied with Joe Viola, and Joe had it, he didn't, wasn't like he was a uh, jazz musician, he was the all-around classical jazz teacher improvisation and he taught you how to have your own voice i mean for me teaching this trinetic chromatic approach i think again it's something i developed on my own and between listening to coltrane and playing with george russell's orchestra you know because the shit was so flamboyant you know, floating around. I'm
0: so glad you but, brought him up. Let's just stop. Before we wrap up set two, I need you to talk about George Russell. The stuff he was, this, it's just, even his small ensemble stuff is just totally new and fresh. I give cats like Viola and so many of those guys, I don't know if Santisi was like this or Pomeroy, but they were interested in getting you to be yourself because it was not hip to sound like anybody then. Now, you're just like you said, you're looking at people that see one or two people break through and quote unquote become famous, and they're trying to comp that. And it's like, I don't know what the alternative is, but how did you meet George Russell and wind up uh, playing with him?
1: Um, teaching at NEC and. Um, being around uh, Steve Lacey and all those cats, you know, just being around them. And these cats talk, and like I told you, we used to play at Michael's, which is right across the street from NEC. So Jackie Byer, Miroslav Vitus, they were all teaching there, and they'd come in weekly to hear us. So, you know, people talk about this and like, oh, man, go hear the Fringe. They play every week. And then I don't know how I met George, but I, I guess the kids were talking, and, and George was like, hey, George, you want to come down and, you know, play, play with well? us? And somehow he heard me, and we became friends. Well, because we were on the faculty, and then he asked me um, to play on the recording of the African game.
0: We're yes, yes.
1: Yeah. You yeah, know, I
0: just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Incredible
1: record. Yeah. It's, we rehearsed for six days, and and then we did the recording on the Saturday, and he got a grant to do it, and he got us, you know, it was, it was a bitch, but on the sixth, on sixth day, we did it, and it came out incredible, because he knew, I mean, his writing was so deep. That he knew who he wanted in the band, and I was a I but he didn't give a shit about that. He said he just liked the way I played as with Gunther Schuller, because he felt like I I played like from the street, and I wasn't really like one of these you know book school players. Exactly. Good. Oh man, dude, that is. <laughs> Uh, but I think I really credit, the, now, just recently I realized that being around George Russell and his Lydian chromatic, just, the, you know, every note, every note is everything. You know what I mean? Versus, you know, it goes this way. And I really think that between Train and he, that I was, a I came up with this thing that was shot into my mind. Mm you know, from listening,
0: you know? Well, how, how many years after <clears throat> did you come up with your um, your theory? Was it in the 90s or, or when you actually put it on paper and sort of, I don't want to say codified it, but, you know.
1: Well, we, we recorded that thing in 84 and then it wasn't until about the late 80s that I was figuring this shit out on a blackboard shake because I'm looking at, you know, I put a Major triad, minor triad, augmented, diminished. Like, wait a minute! All this shit is the same. A major triad is a minor triad inverted, and a minor triad is a major triad inverted. And augmented comes from the major third, and diminished comes from. I said, like, wait a minute! They're all created equal. You flip them around. You know, wow. and I'm figuring this out in front of the kids and they think like, oh, this motherfucker really got shit together. And I'm looking at it as, as spellbound as they were <laughs> because I'm looking at it on the board realizing that when you flip these things, they're the opposite. Now, technically in the classical world, these kids used to bitch at me because I wasn't right. You know what I mean? You weren't
0: technically right. Yeah, I get
1: it. Yeah, but when you flip these triads up upside down they're the opposite of the other and they're all, all four triads are basically major third or minor third. So what's the problem? I used to say what's the freaking problem? <laughs> when I play this at warp speed, you're not going to be... You can't tell me, oh, that was a major triad uh, going to a diminuendo. That's bullshit, because, you know, you can't hear that. Then when I bring the tune in, it's like, forget about it. <laughs> but it was good, because they challenged me, you know? <clears throat> so, uh, but, but later on... Um, the classical kids were showing this shit to their teachers, the classical teachers, and they were like, Man. The first thing I wrote was, Have You Met Miss Jones? I don't know if you've ever seen that, that thing I wrote, and it's, it's in fours and twos. Right. Where I, it's the first time I actually write a solo over uh, the tune that has this in there, and they were praying it to their classical teacher, and the, and the classical cats were like, Damn, this is good, Johnny. So that's when I knew I was in.
0: Yeah, you know, know dude, if you got them ro- you know, going freaking out about it, you know, you're in, dude.
1: Well, I mean, I was at NEC. You know, you're talking about Steve Lacy, you're talking about George Russell, you're talking about Ram Blake. These guys were much more progressed in how they were thinking versus at per- Berkeley, where it was more of a two-five situation. Interesting, but interesting. Then yeah, absolutely. Later, mm-hmm. when I got into this. Berkeley never said anything to me. They never questioned anything. They never said shit to me about anything. They left me alone because they knew, like the right people knew, that I was onto something. You know what I mean?
0: I mean and that. Yeah, that makes me feel good because uh, at least it gives me a glimmer of hope that <clears throat> they're not going to sandbag people for be- thinking outside the box. Uh, you know? No, I mean? that,
1: that that was done a long time ago that was done a long time ago. They were when, when the global came in and even before that, I mean, I was playing with the fringe, you know, these kids talked. the sixth floor knew what was going on. Um, you know, they knew what was happening, but the thing about Berkeley is they knew who to leave alone.
0: (laughs) That's important. Yeah, that is absolutely important. Um, I have to tell you this great story. After our first interview, I just met this cat in Tucson, electric bass player, Patrick Morris, and he, um, you know, real young cat, probably not even 30 years old yet, but uh, I saw him play in this um, sort of sextet setting, and it was really burning stuff, and he obviously has good feel, and and so I, I, I invited him to do an interview, video interview, and we're talking, and he went to Berkeley, and... And I was just I, I brought up your name. Oh, I brought up the band The Fringe and he said his professor, he got to a certain point in his education, his professor said, Your homework assignment is to go see this band. And they're playing they're playing at the they're playing at the they're playing at the lily pad. Yeah. Okay. And he it was it was uh well, I'm just trying to think of a this, the way you got hit in the face with all this music, when you know, Headhunters, Mahavishnu, when you got to Berkeley, and it was just, it, he had not really been exposed to something in a live context that was this much of a behemoth, and it he literally, it just blew him away, he went as much as he possibly could, and he said there was just no repetition, you guys just hit, and it was just a stream of consciousness jam, and the trust... And the language was there, and it was just so great because here it is. You're from a generation. I'm sort of, as a journalist, trying to capture these stories from a a Gen X point of view. And here we have a millennial, maybe a little bit older, who just—I mean—the homework assignment was to go see *The Fringe*. I think that that is pretty much the the cool. And I'm the guys. The professor's name Mark Cohen or something. I forget his name, but he. He just said, go see this band, and it had a massive Im- imprint on this cat. So, you know, man, like, you know, it's sort of like, I remember I'd, I wrote a whole book on Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. I've interviewed a lot of the original Merry Pranksters that, you know, were part of the psychedelic movement in this country. And he just said, you know, when the, meat belt, when the meatball fell, you know, during the, you know, flower period, a lot of legal LSD, it just, it hit everywhere, it touched everyone. And it just whether you liked it or not, it was just splattered all over the place. And it's kind of the same thing with the fringe, man. I mean, you don't know the unquantifiable uh sort of inspiration that you've provided to people all over. I mean, I just met this cat in Tucson, and here he is talking about a life changing moment going and he would see go see you guys as much as he possibly could. So I think it's just my plan is I just connected with the with the um the two guys who really um are really um sort of uh the curators of the Tucson Jazz Festival which is actually wrapping up this weekend we it's a two week festival and my plan is oh, to wow. yeah and they're really sweet guys and we 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 the, i've seen a couple of burning burning groups i tend to go to the smaller venues but we've brought you know we're bringing in trombone shorty we're bringing a lot it's 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 really growing and it's a solid thing but my plan and my project is to coordinate with them to bring brother brother Garzone and the Fringe in for Tucson Jazz Fest wow. in twenty five. Wow, yeah. and I think that's complete uh, completely uh, legitimate. So, um, yeah. but call Tiberi and let you know. Tell him I want to I want to catch yeah. a hang. All right.
1: I mean, uh, Drake, just say to say one more thing. I mean, this band we we started we got together in seventy two. And we never stopped. We started playing weekly at 1976. And other than like the MJQ or the Rolling Stones, there's no group that's ever stayed together that long. In fact, when I'm what? blah, 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 I the no. even in, at small, I, and I say to the people, I go, yeah, we play up in Boston. We've been together 50 years. So I look at us as the Rolling Stones of jazz. And, and they get it because there's no band. I mean band bands have to change, but there was only one or two times it interchanged. once was a was a move and the other one was a death, and the band is still going, you know so and and the kids were the kids have been listening to us since we started playing it's seventy six every week after going to school, you know, coming down to check the band out, you know. So it's almost part of the Berkeley, um upholstery to come and hear the band. And then one more thing, I promise. When I was playing with Tane about a month ago, I said, we played duo, I said, Jeff, do you think I'm doing the right thing, you know, keeping the band together <clears throat> playing this cuckoo cool music? And he looked at me and said, we need you to do this. It was like, wow. Like, a, wow, you know?
0: Dude, it's my goal in this, this calendar year I love. Keep he put. He's absolutely correct, and I love seeing the dates come up. I'm gonna come see you maybe on the East Coast if you guys got some. Just keep promoting the gigs you got. But my plan is to bring the Fringe to Tucson for 25 Tucson Jazz Fest. would uh, be awesome. Yeah, and you should keep doing it because you know what? Uh, there's nothing like it, and I think it's. I mean, if you guys are still getting off on it. Then what? Then obviously you need to keep going because it's going to keep inspiring people, and there's probably just so many people you don't even realize that it's inspired. So
1: yeah.
0: anyway, man, let's uh, you know, let's stay in touch. It's just been a, such a high honor to talk to you again. And, um, you're a cool.
1: You're a cool cat. I'll I'll bust um I'll bust if nuts and see if I bust get his
0: nuts the and see what his deal is. <laughs> you know, I don't. You know, but we'll, we'll we'll take it one step at a time, brother.
1: Yeah, we, but don't, it's not a personal thing. It's
0: just when football's on, forget about it. He hated the Patriots. I had to listen to that. Because he's a <laughs> Yo, go Lions, babe. Just tell – I mean, dude, we – listen, I Tiberi, man, I that guy is legend. If it happens, I can't wait. If not, we'll just do another set. Yeah,
1: all right, yeah we, we'll figure
0: it out. All right, man. Good to hear all you, right, brother. Boy.
1: Take, take it care, easy, man.
0: man. Be cool. Bye.
1: Bye-bye.